We're in a series on Revelation, and we're going to be in Revelation chapters 10 and 11. So if you've got a Bible today and can turn to Revelation 10, that would be great. Um, If you've been following the series and wonder what's happened to Revelation 8 and 9, we did them midweek in our Revelation seminar. Some of us were there. Um, And so if you feel like, well, hang on, they've chopped two chapters out of the book and left them out. What's happening there? They are on on the podcast or on the app. And we did them on Tuesday, but today we're going to be in chapters 10 and 11. I just felt like preaching through four chapters in one go on a Sunday was a bit much. So we're going to be in chapters 10 and 11. You've got them on your sheets. But what I wanted to do for those of us who are new to the book or new to the series, or maybe neither, but just a bit confused by the series as a whole, is to try and summarize the plot of Revelation this morning as a as I introduce the message. So how does the whole book work? What's the storyline of the book? Because otherwise... You can get a bit lost in all the detail and so on. So uh, Revelation is a book of four visions. And this is sort of a, a major outline of the whole book is you have four things that John sees. He says, I was in the spirit and I saw. And the first thing that he says, I was in the spirit and I saw, he sees Jesus. He sees the sevenfold Jesus and his sevenfold church. And he, Jesus writes letters to his church. That's the, fir- the first vision first couple of weeks of the series, and then we're now in the middle of the second one, which is much the longest. It's the vision of the throne of God, and it says, John, it says, I was in the Spirit, and I saw a door open in heaven. I saw this amazing vision of the sovereignty of God, his rule over the world in and through Jesus Christ, and his command over the whole of history, so that even when evil powers are trying to assail and attack and kill the church, God is in charge, and he is protecting the church, and will actually vindicate them in the end. And that's the central big vision with all of the, well, not all of them, but a lot of the sticky, difficult bits in it, and that's the one we're in now. And then there's the vision of the harlot, um, and don't worry, we will come back to that in a subsequent week. I'm not going to get into that now, because it's a, you know, it needs some explaining. And then at the end, there's a vision of the bride, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, Revelation is a good old-fashioned love story. It starts with the lover... And the loved being introduced, but there's a relational problem, if you like, between the the church and Jesus Christ, as we know. And then you see a lot of ups and downs and ifs and buts and all the rest. But in the end, then you you meet the other woman, who is the one who's trying to get in between the lover and the loved. But finally, you find that the groom and the bride are married and they all live happily ever after. In a way, that's the plot of Revelation. It's It's a love story. And we're currently in the series in the middle of the second vision, which has got a number of different elements to it. But again, even in the second vision, there's a fairly straightforward story if you leave out for a moment all of the weird and wonderful symbols, which we are diving into in the messages. But just take the outline of the plot. God is sitting on a throne and we find the lamb, Jesus, given a scroll. And he takes the scroll in his right hand and he begins to break the seals. There are seven seals on the scroll and he begins to break them one at a time. And each time he does, something dramatic happens all around and it has huge impact on the world. And each seal, this is Steve was preaching on this last week, and each seal gets uh, gets broken. And then at the end of the seven seals being being unbroken, just as you think that you're about to open the whole thing and read it, instead of reading it, what happens is seven trumpets begin to play as if to build up our anticipation for what the scroll says. So the seventh seal gets opened, and it goes... It's a huge, proper fanfare, like literally a fanfare. At the end of that, the scroll is finally opened, and it's given to John. And John, strangely, instead of just reading and preaching it, actually eats it. 
and then preaches it, which is a slightly strange symbol we'll see in a moment. And then what happens is in chapters 12 to 15, where you get seven visions which express what it is that's on the scroll. And Joe's going to launch into that next week, and we'll begin to see what those seven visions are, what the first one is. And it's this sort of dramatic build-up moment, and then it finishes with seven bowls, as we'll see in chapter 16. And so today's passage is really, in many ways, the hinge of the book. It's the bit where this lengthy build-up turns into the reading and then beginning to preach the scroll. So this is like the start of, okay, we've now had this very long anticipation of what's, what is on this thing. We first met this scroll in chapter 5. We don't hear it preached until chapter 12. What on earth is it? And then that begins to be explained in more detail next week. And as we get the, the turning point in the book halfway through, we find in many ways this beautiful summary of the victory of the church. And that's what really we're going to look at today in chapter 10 and particularly chapter 11. It's a statement of the victory of the church. That's what we're going to be looking at. That's a beautiful passage in that sense, although it is a little confusing. So what I'll do is read all of chapters 10 and 11, but with chapter 10 I'll comment a bit as we go, and then with chapter 11 we will come back and look at that one in more detail in the rest of the message. Revelation 10 and verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, I think this is the Lord Jesus. I could be wrong. The word angel in Greek just means messenger, so it could be a human or an angelic being or Jesus. I think it's probably Jesus because when you meet someone who is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over their head, their legs are on fire, their face shines like the sun, and they have a voice like a lion that is thundering, I think that sounds like Jesus to me. I could be wrong. It doesn't that much matter if I am, but that's what I think is happening here. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And we're about to hear the scroll preached to us. And what we're told is it's going to be bittersweet. Right? We still use that word in English, don't we? It's going to be bitter and sweet at the same time. It's going to taste sweet because it's going to contain truths that are really rich and satisfying and wonderful and honey-like for us. But it's going to taste bitter. It's going to feel bitter as well because it's going to have moments of judgment and difficulty that are hard to hear. So we're being prepared to know that the message of Revelation and the message of the next few chapters is going to contain both judgment and blessing. It's going to have great news for some and it's going to have scary news for others. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, that's exactly what happens. Then I was given a measuring rod 
like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, don't freak out, okay? When you start getting weird time measurements, everybody goes, oh, what's going on? I'm losing it. So, 42 months, 1260 days refer to the same period of time, three and a half years. The way they count, obviously 42 months, the way we count as well. The way they count, that's three and a half years. And three and a half years is a very significant number in two biblical books, here and in Daniel. And, and, and it's like it's a, a period of time that refers to a short and very intense period of trouble that the nation goes through. I'll tell you why in a moment, but I just want you to realize this is something we do too. So in our culture, the numbers 9-11 mean that, right? 20 years ago, they didn't. But now, you say the num- I know say the numbers 9-11, you don't think that's two numbers that add up to make 20. You think of Twin Towers falling, you think of 3,000 people dead, you think of all the wars that flow from it, you think of the social problem. You think of a very significant moment in our relatively recent history and civilization of going, wow, that, that 9-11 is a meaningful number to me. Now, for the Jews in this period... Three and a half years was like that. It was a period that referred to something that happened 200 years before where the Jewish people had been attacked by the Syrians and the Syrian king had come, gone into the holy place and sacrificed a pig in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem and had attacked the Jewish people and had tried to force the men to remove the marks of circumcision. I mean, it, it was a period of terrible persecution and oppression for the Jewish nation. At the end of which, the Jewish people rose up in revolt, and they fought, and they won. And they got their freedom for the next hundred years. And that, as a piece of trivia, that's what they celebrate in the festival of Hanukkah. So that's the, it's a very significant part of their story that they still remember as a way of saying, yeah, we faced serious opposition and attack, but ultimately God was with us and he rescued us. So that's what 42 months or 1260 days generally refers to in the book of Revelation. It's a a very intensive period of persecution and opposition. And by the way, the two witnesses, who will now be the focus of most of the story in the rest of this chapter, the two witnesses I think refer to the church. I'll explain why in a few minutes, but I think this is the church that is being talked about, these two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people, people, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, will gaze at their dead bodies and make and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. 
And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God. So this passage has kind of got a lot of... There's a lot to it, but it's about the triumph of the church. I think it's about the victory of the church as a result of the victory of Jesus. I've never heard a message preached on it before, but it summarizes very beautifully, I think, a a picture of what the doctrine of the church is, what we're supposed to believe about who we are and what we do and what will happen to us. It starts by, it introduces us to the witness of the church. And this is where I want to just spend a couple of minutes just considering why it's the case that these two witnesses who are the subjects of the story, why these are the church. I think they are. Okay, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they'll prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's what it says. And The two lampstands John has already told us refer to the churches, back in chapter 1. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us, because if we know know that the lampstands, lampstands in Revelation represent churches, that actually really helps us, and it kind of goes, oh yeah, that sort of makes sense, because you are speaking here of these two individuals, whoever they are or whatever they represent, they are people that witness to the victory of Jesus and work signs and wonders and get persecuted and then get vindicated and risen from the dead. That's kind of what the church do, right? You would think that sounds like us. We are the community who tell people about Jesus and work out the kingdom in action and signs and wonders and suffer and then stand before the Lord. So that sounds like, that sounds about right. This is the kind of thing we would expect the church to do. But of course, the question then is, well, why on earth are there two of them? Right? If this is the church, why not just have one who's obviously the church? What's the deal with two? I think there's a very important reason why, which is that in biblical thinking, two witnesses are the way you know someone's telling the truth. Right? So this is a way of underscoring that the witness of the church is true and trustworthy and authoritative rather than just some person's idea. Right? So in our world, you want to know something, you know, someone accuses someone of something, there might well be a whole load of ways of testing whether they're right. Right? DNA testing, forensic evidence, all that sort of people, CSI come in with their plastic bags and their gloves and they do th- I don't know what they do, but they do things and then they go away to a lab and they come back and say, yes, we think that so-and-so did it. But in the ancient world, you don't have that. In the ancient world, you're really the way of verifying, is this person telling the truth? Is, is, this, is this backed up by evidence of two or three witnesses rather than is it just a he said, she said thing? And so for when John describes two witnesses as representing what the church says about Jesus Christ, it's John's way of saying they are right. What the church is saying is true. You can believe them. It's an authoritative witness, not some person. And the contrast with modern religions is significant, isn't it? This isn't in Mormonism. Joseph Smith finds a pair of glasses in his garden and then translates a book. And then you go, well, I don't know. Did you really find them? I don't know. Is that really true? Well, who, is anyone else going to back you up on that? 
to give a more widespread example, nor is it Muhammad going up a mountain, having a vision, receiving the Quran, coming down and telling us what it says. That's the evidence of one witness. We see in Christian thinking, in Jewish thinking, the evidence of two or three witnesses is very important. Because otherwise, well, that might just be you. How would we know? And so in the New Testament, you don't find one witness. You find four different gospel witnesses, and you find 27 different texts which witness to the victory of Jesus in all kinds of different ways. And that's a very important distinction. It's actually very central to Christian thinking that we appeal to historical, reasonable, publicly checkable evidence about what, who Jesus is. We're not just trusting one person's word for it. So we genuinely have. The New Testament's full of them. Historical documents that refer to people and places and offices and sh- seafaring techniques and shipbuilding and all kinds of weird things that you can check out in comparison with other ancient sources and find out if it's true. That's a very significant appeal. And John wants us to see that the witness of the church is true. That's why there's two. right? There's two lampstands, not because there are two churches or three or millions, but because there is ultimately one church, but it serves with a double witness. Its testimony is true. You can trust the church when she speaks about who Jesus is. So there's a pattern effectively introduced early on to the fact that the church is a community who witnesses truthfully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having shown us that, John very quickly moves to show us not just the witness of the church, but the power of the church. Because the church is not just the community that speaks about Jesus, but the community who shows with her life and actions that what Jesus says is true. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foe. Some of you are going to try that on Down and Way on the way home, I can tell. You're going to walk down and just, somebody goes, that guy just coming up, and just see what happens. And we're going to look at where the symbol comes from. But it's interesting that four different miraculous signs are used in this passage to describe what the church does. Right? Fire comes from their mouth. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues. Now, if you know your Old Testament, those will, that will ring bells. You'll go, wow, two of those stories come from the ministry of Elijah, and two of those stories come from the ministry of Moses. Right? Elijah speaks and fire comes from heaven. Elijah prays and the sky shuts and stops raining. Moses st- prophesies and is able to turn the earth to plagues, and Moses is able to turn the rivers of water to blood. So what John is doing is giving us a picture of the church's powerful ministry, the church's wonder-working, signs-and-wonder-displaying ministry, but by drawing on two very famous Old Testament examples of people whose power backed up their words. Yeah, because that's what Moses and Elijah are. In fact, Moses is like the law, and Elijah is like the prophets. And both of them stand next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. These two witnesses... John John is saying the church's witness is very like the witness of Moses and Elijah because the church is a group of people who speak truth to power and then find sometimes they have to work powerfully with signs and wonders to demonstrate that God is real and that their words are actually true. Elijah spoke, fire consumed his enemies. Moses touches the bank of staff and the water turns to blood. And so John is showing us the church doesn't just witness to the kingdom with our words, but with power. We demonstrate it in signs and wonders. So people can see what the church is doing, like they saw Elijah's miracles and Moses, and they say, oh, you guys must be telling the truth. Because you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't. 
So the church has a, I would never disparage the church's truth-telling, witnessing ministry, but in biblical thinking, it is very closely connected with a powerful, wonder-working ministry to demonstrate the truthfulness of what he said. And that might be miracles, it might be working out the life of Jesus in our daily lives to verify the truth, and it often is both. We demonstrate the kingdom of God with power. It's not just a matter of talk, but power. And that's what John is highlighting for us here in this picture drawing from Moses and Elijah. Now, I just read this story in the last 10 days, which I really enjoyed. There's many of us, I've got, by the grace of God, I've experienced dozens of miracle stories, which have either been for people very close to me or sometimes people who I don't know so well, but who've just loads and loads of things of serious, big, chunky miracles. I, I mean, like, you know, eyes and deaf ears opening and that sort of thing. So proper miracles in a sense, you know, the things where you go, that's a really amazing story. I've seen that dozens of times. I've been very blessed in that. But a story that particularly struck me this week or last week that I just wanted to share because I love the punchline. Um, And this is a particularly good, I think, example of the the wonder-working power that there is in the church. And this is a story that was told by He's an American academic who has written a whole bunch of books on this kind of subject. He researches miracle testimony, um, which has been a specialist field of his, actually, in, in his academic studies. And I know the guy a bit because we've corresponded slightly, but he's been in academia for 40 years in the state. He's a, in other words, he's not a flaky, random bloke. He's, he's done his homework on this, but I love the way this story ends. Okay? He says this, around 1960, in the Republic of Congo, a two-year-old girl named Therese was bitten by a snake. She cried out for help, but by the time her mother, Antoinette, reached her, Therese was unresponsive and seemed to have stopped breathing. No medical help was available to them in their village, so Antoinette strapped little Therese to her back and ran to a neighboring village. According to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, brain cells start dying less than five minutes after their oxygen supply is removed, an event called hypoxia. After six minutes, lack of oxygen can cause severe brain damage or death. Six minutes. Antoinette estimates that given the distance and the terrain, it probably took about three hours to reach the next village. By the time they arrived, her daughter was likely either dead or had sustained significant brain damage. Antoinette immediately sought out a family friend, Coco Ngoma Moise, who was an evangelist in the neighboring village. They prayed over the lifeless girl and immediately she started breathing again. By the next day, she was fine. No long-term harm and no brain damage. Today, Therese has a master's degree and is a pastor in Congo. When I heard this story, as a Westerner, I was naturally tempted towards skepticism, but it was hard to deny because Therese is my sister-in-law and Antoinette is my mother-in-law. I just love that story. And I thought, that's just one. Like, and many of us will have seen and witnessed many things like that. But that's just one example of the way in which the power of the church, very, and power of the church in God, verifies the witness of the church to God. And so actually the church is not just the speaking community, but the doing community, the power community, not just the witnessing one. And that's very significant for us. But the problem is that the combination of word with authority and prophetic power does not always go down well. And when you do both of those things, it is very likely, in fact I'd say biblically it's certain, that the third thing will happen, which is the persecution of the church. The persecution of the church. There's four in total, but this is the next place that this text goes. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, don't worry about he, she, or it, we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks, but the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And there, as in the bodies of the church, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
are frequently in Scripture the people who witness to God and then work wonders for God end up getting persecuted by God's enemies. Frequently to the point of almost always, okay? And in fact, the two individuals we've just looked at, that's what happens. Moses does it. He says, these people are ready to stone me. Elijah says, Lord, I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. And you would find throughout the Bible that happens over and over again. And so Jeremiah and John and Peter and Paul, everybody, right? You speak the words of God and you work the works of God, people will come and get you. Now, they might not kill you. In many of these cases, they do. And interestingly, many of the individuals I've just mentioned were persecuted in Jerusalem specifically, which is what Jesus said would happen, the city where their Lord was crucified. And that's what Jesus actually said would happen. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets. I wish that you would, but you didn't. So Jesus has already told us this, that actually there was often significant opposition in one particular place, which is the place where this vision is occurring. And so we got persecution of the church being highlighted that the beast, again, of whom more to come, but the beast is going to fight and conquer and kill the church on the basis of their testimony to Jesus and their powerful working on his behalf. And they're so pleased about it, the people of earth, that they have a party when it happens. Say, we've killed the church. And they start giving each other presents and celebrating in the street. The church is dead. Ding dong, the church is dead. It's just a, a huge moment of celebration for the world that the church is annoying, frustrating, thorn in the side witness to the victory of Christ has finally been done away with. We've killed her. Well done, long, you know, rest in peace, the church. The upshot is if you witness to Jesus with power, you will get persecuted. Right? You may even be killed. But then we see the triumph of the church. So the church has now spoken truth about Christ. It has witnessed to the kingdom of God in miracles and with power. It has been persecuted. But then, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, dead bodies lying in the streets, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. It's the vindication and triumph of the church after at the other side of persecution. For the believer, death is not the end. Death is not even the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning. Because John sees the church, like Jesus as we know, killed and then raised from death after three days and summoned to heaven in a cloud in full view of their enemies. So the people of the world are still dancing around going, yeah, it's great, we killed the church. And then, oh no, the church is coming back to life again, standing to their feet, has gone up to heaven. Whoa, great fear fell on them as they realized these people have been vindicated by God. I thought we'd killed them and they actually triumphed. What on earth is going on? I remember where I was, and you may too, when 21 Coptic Christians were executed on the beach by ISIS in Libya. It was about four years ago, and I remember them being marched out there with their orange jumpsuits. I didn't watch the video, but I saw it because I didn't want to watch people being beheaded, to be honest. But I saw the stills, and it was pretty shocking. I remember, I remember that day, I remember where I was, in pool. Uh, I was a wife or something, and I, I saw this, I was like, man, how, God have mercy, how has this been allowed to happen? And uh, very soon after this photograph and the ones like it was released, um, they, the people who are experts in these things said, oh, what they've done, they've doctored the photos to make themselves look taller. So all of the men dressed from head to toe in black are getting the men dressed from head to toe in orange, but they're making themselves look like they're seven feet tall. And I thought, evil always does that. 
Evil always makes itself... Evil, evil versus good is actually is not a fair fight. So what evil always does is makes itself look taller than it is to threaten people and try and strike fear. But it doesn't work ultimately because it's not based on any reality. But what happens here, of course, is they line them all up. And these are Coptic Christians. That, that means they basically worship, they worship Jesus. They love, you speak to a Coptic Christian, you think, you believe the same things I do, but my goodness, you worship in a very different way than the way I do. It's not... You would, they would find what we've done this morning unfamiliar in certain ways, and we would in the same way if we went to one of their services. But they love the Lord Jesus, and they are being killed for their faith. And it's being put on the internet. And you, I, you watch that, as I, as I did, and you think, wow, what is happening here? How, do, how is this reality so much a part of our world? And John wants us to see in this vision that that is not the end of the story. That that's what happens, that people do that and they actually leave their bodies in the streets or on the beach and then they go and have a party and they put it online and they say, look, we won, we won. And John says, that's not the end of the story. He doesn't, John doesn't see this as a moment of defeat. He sees this as a moment of triumph because John knows that after three and a half days, the breath of life comes into them. They stand to their feet and they are exalted into heaven. John wants you to know this is not a moment of vengeance. This is a moment of vindication. This isn't a moment of terror. This is a moment of triumph. You think you've executed these people and actually God has exalted these people. You've got to see that's what this is. This is an enthronement. This is a moment of applause and fanfare and welcome to my father's house. This is a glorious moment of victory. But it won't look like that to the people on the earth until it happens. And martyrdom in scripture is a big theme in this book. It's a third or fourth time it's come up already and it will come up in a big way in a couple of weeks time. But martyrdom is not the end in Scripture. It is, as I say, an enthronement. And the challenge of the martyrs for me is to say, well, okay, it's easy for me in a way to say that and preach it here, knowing that it's very unlikely to happen to any of us living in this city. Although, probably, given the spread of the room, there are some of us who come from nations, our home nation. This may well be happening to people right now. But if it's not going to happen to me, I can at least ask myself the question, okay, so these guys didn't love their lives even to death. What is it that I might be at risk of holding on to and saying, no way am I giving that up? What are the things where I might... So I run a, used to run a gap year program for kids, yes, kids, young adults aged 18 to 21. Sorry for being patronizing kids. Um, and they would take a year out before they went, you know, after they left school or before they started work, and they would take a year out and work for the church. And while I was running that gap year program, I became aware, is that me? Uh, while I was running that program, I became aware that there was an equivalent program being run in China in which the people said, one of the things you had to tick on the form, like I'd say, what's your name, address, have you got an elder's reference, have you been baptized, are you, what are you serving in the church? The equivalent form in China had asked the question, are you prepared to be killed for your faith this year? And I thought that would not occur to me to put that on my form. And as I read it, I thought, whoa, that challenged me. And then I thought, hang on, but what is the equivalent in my world, of the thing that I might go, I don't really want to give that up. And the challenge of the martyrs often is, even if I don't, it's not going to cost me my life, it will cost me something. In fact, it'll often cost me quite a big thing. It might just cost me an evening. It might cost me just some money. It might cost me my career. I don't know what it's going to cost me, but I want to be clear with God that this is what I am doing. And again, that's why when we put the baptism video, that's why we start with a burial. Because we come into the Christian life as those who say, Jesus, you have this all, and that might mean you take it all. It's not just rhetoric, is it? This is the reality of living for Christ. And this is what, of course, John wants us to see. Having done that, you get vindicated, you get triumphed. But it will be very costly in the short term while you're waiting. So Revelation 11 is, in that sense, is a glorious picture of the church. It's a, a description of the witness, the power, the persecution, and the triumph of the church. 
And that happens corporately, right? So you, that's what we do collectively as the church, is we tell people who Jesus is, we work out signs and wonders in power, we live the gospel in our lives, we face opposition, and ultimately we win. It's also true of us as individuals. There's a lot of senses in which that is the shape of my and your Christian life, if you're a believer, right? Even on the baptism video, as we go down into the water, we witness to the victory of Jesus and the crucifixion for sins and his resurrection from the dead. We witness. As our Christian life continues, we live out the gospel of God in power, in our lives, in our actions, our behavior, and our love for our neighbors in signs and wonders. We then, as a result of that, face opposition and persecution at an individual level, and ultimately we triumph and inherit the new creation. And so that's the story of the church. It's also the story of you and me, but ultimately it's the story of Jesus, isn't it? That Jesus comes to earth, and that's where the power comes from to live this life, that Jesus comes to earth witnessing to the kingdom and working out the kingdom of God in power and facing not just persecution but death, even death on a cross for it, and having been crucified under Pontius Pilate, he is then raised from the third day according to the scriptures and ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's the life of Jesus in miniature just as much as it's ours. And that's why the crowd of people watching at this point in the story break forth into shouts of triumph when the seventh trumpet sounds. And they say, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he's going to reign forever and ever. That's why they're shouting. That's why we get to join in that cry. And it's why we get to join in the prayer of the elders that immediately follows it. Because we know that what happened to Jesus will ultimately happen to us. It's just a question of when. So what I'd like to do is actually to pray that prayer of the elders together. And I'd ask if you could stand, and we're just going to read and declare this prayer. It may not be a prayer you know very well. You may never have used it in prayer yourself. Some of us may have sung bits of it, I suppose. But I'd love us to pray this together. It's going to appear on the screen as a declaration. We don't very often pray things involving the word wrath, I suspect. But in this circumstance, you've got ISIS in mind. This is a good thing to pray, right? And declare the victory of Jesus over all things. I'll, I'll lead us, but let's pray. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Thank you that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah.